Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland Area Attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. Before we get going with the show this week, we want to let everyone know that we're starting a weekly newsletter. It'll have our take on the week's events, the best of what we've read this week, updates and announcements about the podcast, and some random thoughts thrown in there for good measure. And we planned on sending it out every Sunday. And so if you'd like to check it out, let us know at mail at politicsguys.com. That's mail at politicsguys.com. This week's edition will be our very first, and so we'd really appreciate your feedback. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't, what you'd like to see more or less of, your thoughts about the design and layout, really anything that occurs to you. Um, Again, if you're interested, let us know by sending us an email. That's mail at politicsguys.com, and we'll get that out to you right away. And, of course, we won't sell, give away, barter, or otherwise share your email address with anyone else. All right, on to the show. So our top story this week is the transition of power from President Obama to President-elect Trump. Now, a lot has to happen in the two months until Inauguration Day and in the months after, too. And it involves not only around 4,000 presidential appointments, around a quarter of which require Senate confirmation, but also getting a political novice and his team ready to handle the day-to-day operations of really a massive federal bureaucracy. We're talking hundreds of federal agencies, and there's actually no agreement on the precise number of federal agencies, believe it or not. Um, Jay, you probably don't find that surprising at all. No, not at all. Uh, you know, we're talking 2.8 million civilian employees, throwing another 1.3 million active-duty military, a budget of nearly, nearly $4 trillion, dollars, dollars, dollars. dollars. It is a huge job, and as a result, transitions always have an element of chaos because the enormity of the task, it inevitably stuns the incoming administration regardless of their past experience. And, you know, the initial narrative on the Trump transition was that it seemed more chaotic than most, but that doesn't really seem to be the case, at least at this point. I mean, there was some friction early on, but... Things seem to have calmed down after Donald Trump named Vice President-elect Mike Pence as the new transition director taking over from Chris Christie. Um, And now right now the president-elect's people are getting out to the agencies and he's been rolling out his appointments on the schedule that I'd say is roughly on par with previous administrations. And we're going to start – Actually, I'd say he's he's uh, fairly far ahead of of Obama's schedule on on appointments. And so, uh, yeah, the the point – I think the larger point, right, is that there's no there's no transition crisis at least yeah. i don't see that being a crisis and so what i thought we do is start today with what we know about uh, president elect trump's appointments with a special focus later on on his naming steve bannon chief strategist and senior counsel um so yeah. so here- and we should also put out the, the caveat that we record this show on sunday morning uh and there are expected to be more announcements later today on sunday uh, so that that if we seem behind the times, it's it's not just that we're behind the times; it's that's when we record the show. And yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So from right where we where we sit right now, here's where things stand. So in his initial two appointments, President-elect Trump named Rince Priebus, who's currently the Republican. Right. I always get that wrong. Rince. You know, it's it's such a weird. Why didn't they? <laughs> why didn't they name him Bob? Bob Priebus. I should just call him that. Um. Anyway, named him uh, the White House Chief of Staff and Steve Bannon, his senior counsel. Now, his other appointments include Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions for Attorney General, General Mike Flynn as National Security Advisor, and Kansas Representative Mike Pompeo as CIA Director. And the two big appointments everyone's waiting for right now are Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense. And for state, it's said that former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani is a top candidate, as well as, and here's a was a big shock for me, uh, a strong Trump critic and 2012 Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney. Uh, and for Secretary of Defense, there's a lot of buzz around retired Marine General James Mattis and also some talk even about retired Army General and former CIA Director David Petraeus. 
So, Jay, what do you think about Trump's appointment so far and how he's been handling the uh, the transition, aside from Steve Bannon, who we'll talk about separately? Yeah, I, I'd say if you're a traditional Republican, um, I think you're saying so far so good. Uh, we mentioned last week the the, the Priebus uh, uh, pick. Uh, that, that clearly goes to your more traditional – uh, Republican uh, base. He's a he's a again not a a, a Trumpist. Um, he was sort of a reluctant Trumpist uh, as as the nomination became clear. Uh, you know, just just like Pence was. Pence was sort of is, is an old school regular conservative Republican, and you sort of know what you're getting there. Um, uh, Mike Pompeo uh, is sort of a a a. He's certainly hawkish, more hawkish than than we've seen in, in other uh, CIA directors. Uh, big critic of Iran, but he is a favorite of the uh, House Freedom Caucus. Uh, he's also, uh, by by all reports, a a very very smart guy. Um, so that's good. Jeff Sessions again um, is a, a what you would call old school sort of conservative Republican. Been in the Senate for twenty years. Um, and and again, is a, a known quantity. Uh, it, it's uh, uh, he's not. Uh, none of these are, are sort of surprise picks. The the uh, you know who's this guy? Um, what's he going to do? Type type thing. So I, I think I think most Republicans see see the pick so far as as reassuring. Yeah, I, I certainly would agree. Of course, I see the picks as all awful, but I, right. I would. No, no but you, know. you see, I mean, I mean, I'm not talking whether you agree or disagree from sure. a policy standpoint. I mean, you didn't, you wouldn't have expected him to pick someone who, you know, again, agreed from a policy standpoint. I'm just talking from a uh, experience, uh, uh, you know, working yeah. in government. Again, being a known quantity, being yeah. sort of a regarded as a serious person. Yeah, predictably um, awful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with you entirely. I mean, I think. You know, there's been uh, a lot of talk about, uh, uh, you know, Jeff Sessions, for instance, uh, a lot of talk about some racist remarks in the past. Uh, uh, and a lot of folks would alleged say racist remarks, a, a, but yeah. alleged racist <laughs> remarks where he uh, uh, allegedly called uh, an African-American attorney boy and, 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 and some other things. And, and, you know, I think Jeff Sessions has gone on the record as being uh, the sort of attorney general who I think will be a huge step back. Uh, and I think, well, uh, certainly on, for instance, he's very strongly anti-marijuana. And it's, I think that's going to set up an interesting clash because Donald well, Trump – well, wait, well, wait, well, wait, well, Donald wait, Trump – I mean, you know, Sessions is, is pretty much – he liked the whole Nancy Reagan just say no and doesn't think that uh, marijuana should be legalized. And I think that's going to set up an interesting clash potentially with Donald Trump who's essentially said – not essentially said, who has said, I think this should be left up to the states. And so that sounds – to me, like Trump thinks that the Obama sort of uh, policy of just letting that go and letting the states do what they want might clash with what uh, uh, Jeff Sessions might want to do with the, okay. All the right. Justice that, well, that Department. Well, that makes sense. I thought you were going somewhere else with oh. that. And, I mean, my, my, my point was going to be as far as uh, Jeff Sessions, his job will be to enforce the laws that are on the books. Um and I guess the marijuana does does come out to be one of those those issues. Exactly. Um, uh, but uh, the the idea that he will somehow uh, turn back the clock, or there, there was one um, leftist commentator who was suggesting the the reintegration of the military uh, would would occur under Jeff. I mean, and just this this crazy sort of nonsense kind of stuff. Um, I, I don't buy it. Um, and and you know I think we can talk about the the racism allegations too because that to me is uh, this is racism is sort of the the new McCarthyism uh, it's not even new I guess it's it's kind of been that way for the last twenty some years is uh, you know if you don't the, the, there's sort of a joke uh, on the right and maybe maybe you've heard it or or maybe not this is sort of a news bubble test but you know what do you what do you call a Republican who's winning an argument right. Racist, yeah. yes, a racist, uh, and then sort of the, the sort of racist or or a, homo, or a homophobe or misogynist, whatever. Um, but uh, which is not to say that there aren't some racist, homophobe, misogynist Republicans. Sure. Okay. Sure, and, by, and vice versa. But I I I think that uh, I I don't know that there is the evidence to suggest that the Jeff Sessions. Is is one of them, or is the racist that they portray? Right. I mean, as as his record comes out, he's there's also going to be 
uh, talk about how he prosecuted the Klan, um, uh, how he's he's uh, prosecuted death sentences against racist people. I mean, it, again, it's it seems to me this is just a uh, you know look if if you're from Alabama, also uh, you know you are you are ipso facto a racist, and and I I don't know we're, I'm getting off I'm getting off topic, but it's just one of those things that. That bugs me a little bit, and I think it's one of the things that really hurt the Democrats in the last election, um, is that they're they're just kind of they've gone to the well too many times on this one. Well, and I think you know, going back more to sort of what we might expect from the the Justice Department under Sessions, because he's certainly going to be confirmed by a Republican dominated Senate, uh, is one thing that I, has con- that I'm concerned about is what I, that I know is going to happen. In fact, is there are going to be a lot fewer cases. Justice Department is going to bring about uh, uh, voter suppression efforts that I you know that I believe are occurring with great regularity in Republican controlled states, which you which you have argued are uh, just simply voter ID laws and sensible measures and so forth. You know, right. we have we have a uh, we have a clear disagreement on that. But I think we can both agree that the Justice Department is not going to be focusing on that as they have been uh, a, a great deal more, and I think to their great credit in the Obama administration. Right. I'd, I'd agree that you're you're right on the prognosis there. But yeah. I think that that prognosis would have been the same under any Republican president. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, uh, looking at his uh, national security advisor and CIA director, it seems clear to me, too, that the one one theme that I've seen, and in fact, in a lot of his foreign policy uh, uh, picks or suggestions is people who are very anti-establishment in the sense that they have spoken out, that they've kind of broken from what you might call the military slash national security elite, you know, Mm -hmm. people who want to take a very different, more aggressive uh, approach against uh, against what they would call radical Islamic extremism. Uh, You know, Mike Flynn is is said on on Twitter that it's rational to fear Muslims and, you know, that kind of thing. And what folks on the left, including myself, are concerned about is that that sort of rhetoric we feel, and I think rightly so, is the kind of thing that actually is a great recruiting tool for uh, these organizations. And, and I don't know that it's going to be very effective. I'm concerned that it's going to be uh, actually counterproductive. Now, I, I imagine you have a slightly different take on that. Well, yeah, I, I've never bought into that uh, recruiting tool sort of argument. Um, I think the, the Muslim world has, has plenty of its own recruiting tools. And they're not looking at, 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 you know, there's there's not some some kid you're signing up to uh, to join ISIS or to be a suicide bomber and say, hey, have you seen this tweet from Mike Flynn? Uh, and he's like, hey, I'm in. Um, I I just don't think that's the way it works. No, and, and okay, um, fair enough. I don't think that's exactly the way it works either. I think it's just sort of a it creates an, an environment, an atmosphere where some where some confused kid in I don't know Michigan or somewhere you know who maybe has some is a little bit drawn to it, kind of that atmosphere sort of can just push some people over the edge, I think. I don't think that's unreasonable. Well, I, all right. I, I was thinking more in terms of foreign recruiting as opposed to domestic recruiting. Oh, no, no, yeah. But I get that. Um, and uh, uh, But I think, you know, when you take uh, comments in context, and and to me, a, a big a big problem that, that Hillary Clinton had uh, and the Democrat Party have has is is the failure to you know call it like it is um and i think saying islamic terror and again it's one of those radical islam it's it's one of those things that the, the left says oh this is silly it doesn't matter what we we call it um but but others see this as very much an avoidance of of why not call, i mean it's sort of like what you know, what What would you have, have called the – what would they have called the Nazis? You know what I mean? If they couldn't say Nazi. <laughs> you know, sort of – it's sort of um, – I think there's there's something to be said to saying, look, this – we are facing a uh, problem that is, like it or not, associated uh, with radical Islam. Um, and and I think for many Americans, people say things like that is is refreshing. Um, sure. And I, I mean, I, I tend to I, I think that uh, Democrats have gone too far the other way and running away from that phrase. And so on that on that, I certainly I certainly agree with you. My concern comes with uh, the more 
sort of uh, inflammatory statements like the one yeah. I suggested about, you know, that that, uh, that General Flynn gave and, and, and things that Donald Trump, in fact, has said himself. Um, well, you know, and the other thing that – well, this is just something we'll have to watch is people say one thing and, and you, are, you are sort of given greater latitude uh, to say inflammatory things during a campaign when you're not in office – uh, as opposed to what you can say when you are sure. in office and, or being and considered I, for office. And I think everyone would, would agree that Donald Trump and the people who I think are, Donald Trump is attracted to and who are attracted to Trump are people who are perhaps a little more uh, uh, boisterous in their comments, a little more inflammatory in their comments, sometimes a lot more inflammatory in their comments than we're used to seeing. And, yeah. you know, I – you know, there there was a there was a line that's been going around saying that Trump's followers take him seriously, but they don't take him literally. And the media took him literally, but for too long didn't take him seriously. And I don't know. Oh, I that's think, really excellent. Yeah, yeah. It was a, a reporter, I believe, for the Pittsburgh Post Gazette, maybe came up with that. I don't know, but you know that, and, and I think maybe there's something to that. But but I also think that's problematic. In that, do we need to just start assuming that? presidential candidates and presidents are that we can't take them at their word that we have to sort of have to put in some sort of a hyperbole filter i i, I find that yeah, but, highly but problematic all, you and i do that all the time yeah but this is and, i think and, different. and i think i think the folks on the left do that all the time I mean, certainly uh back in the day when barack obama uh, and hillary clinton both said that uh, they believed marriage was between uh one man and one woman um you know, come on, guys. You know that <laughs> they were saying that with a wink, um, and and I, I think you know that that happens on both sides all the time. And and uh, Trump is is maybe a a a bigger uh, offender to this the is what I'm saying. He says yeah. things like I'm going to build a wall and so forth. Yeah, but yeah, this is what I'm saying. Yeah. So you okay. know, one other thing. Moving on from this, one thing we haven't talked about is uh, potential conflicts of interest. Uh, potential nepotism issues. For instance, uh, Donald Trump's uh, son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is wants to have a role in the administration, and uh, reportedly he's you know one of the people that Donald Trump trusts the most. And uh, but there are there are anti-nepotism laws on the books that say that even if he volunteers his services, he can't be part of the administration. And apparently they're looking for ways around that. And another issue is Donald Trump seems to be wanting to set up some sort of a blind trust that's not really a blind trust and have his kids sort of in charge of things and still the business enterprises and still kind of know what's going uh, on in those enterprises. And of course, that's a huge problem because, you know, number one, Donald Trump is one of the you know, richest uh, presidents we'll ever have had to this point. And given his his vast array of interests, there is certainly a huge potential for not just conflicts of interest, but what a lot of folks on the left are worrying about is his doing kind of on a smaller scale what his friend Vladimir Putin uh, has done is use the office to uh, line his pockets. Uh, what do you think about that, Jay? I, I think that's that is always uh, ought to be a concern, but I think there's there's ways in place to, to do this. I mean, there are going to be a lot of uh, hopefully, I mean, I, I would think there should be a lot of uh, attorneys in the White House and the Justice Department in the Trump Organization who are very smart and very highly paid and take a look at this and and come up with a way uh, to separate that out. I, I to, to me, I think Trump would be foolish uh, to to take the risk of of uh, you know trying to make a couple extra bucks at the expense of of uh, harming his presidency. Uh, to me, it, it seems that the presidency yeah. is the, the bigger thing that he's he's been after lately, um, and uh, I, I think there's there's a way to to do this. I mean, you you said other presidents have set up things like a blind trust. Now this is a little different uh, in that it's not just sort of a portfolio that you're handing off. It's a a you know company that's that's up and operating and, and is is visible when you've got your kids potentially running it, um, but. Uh, um, you know, also, I mean, otherwise, I mean, what do you, you know, I suppose you can't really throw the Trump kids out of work. If you say they can't, can't work for the administration, they can't work for the, uh, the, the family business. Oh no. What will they do? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what a hardship but, uh, it will be. They'll be yeah, under I mean, some freeway overpass like, somewhere. Um, yeah. Um, but, uh, no, my, uh, my sense is I, I don't see that as a, as a big concern. Um, you know, and, well, uh, I guess I, I see what you're saying. My one concern is that, uh, 
because the Democrats don't have a majority in either uh, in either chamber, what that means is that their ability to conduct investigations and do the sort of things that, for instance, House Republicans did, that a lot of Republicans would say that was a very important thing. They felt it kept President Obama, at least to a certain extent, in check. Uh, I looked at it as just kind of continual harassment of President Obama, of course, as a lot of people on the left did. But, uh, you know, the House Democrats or, or you know, uh, Senate Democrats don't have that ability. They can do certain, I mean, they can do certain investigations. They have resources. But when you're in the minority, your ability to do that is a lot more limited than when you're in the majority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But if only if only the Democrats had some friends in the media who would be interested in investigating That, that will Trump. be helpful, yes. And uh, there'll, you know, there'll be mean, a lot of that. You're right. That, you know? <laughs> you're <laughs> I mean, right. I'm sure there will be no shortage of, of, uh, of uh, Trump exposés uh, sure. in the next four years and yeah. and. You know, I, I would I anticipate the major media people would, I mean, like they did during the campaign, sort of set up sort of an opposition yeah. research, uh, you know, Trump desk. as well. They uh, should as well. They should. Yeah, you know, and before we move before we move on to Steve Bannon, I want to say one one really positive thing that I feel so far has come out of the the Trump transition is uh, that the campaign the transition team announced that for. Uh, member people who will serve in the Trump administration, they plan on instituting a five-year lobbying ban uh, after after serving. And now currently it's one to two years, depending on the position. But so that would be a, a remarkable change. Now, of course, with this, the devil's in the details uh, because there's a distinction to be made between direct lobbying, where you go right to sure. people in the White House, or where you just kind of say to someone, "Well, talk to talk to Bob" or something like that, you know. And and also, it's the kind of thing that's very difficult to enforce. But I see that as a move in a positive direction. You know, Donald Trump, in part, campaigned on reducing the input, the influence of lobbyists, and draining the swamp, and so forth. And that's an incredibly tough thing, as he's found. Uh, you know, he's he's been asked about that, the influence of lobbyists in his administration so far. And he's essentially said, you know, it's tough because they're the people who know what's going on and we're going to have to transition away from that. I, I, I think that's a realistic view. I hope he's as good as his word on that. And I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed on that. So we'll just we'll just see. Yeah. I, and, I, and I'll, I'll speak as someone who is an actual registered lobbyist in the state of Ohio. Um for the the uh, should I should I name my my client? I probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> but they're 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 big and mean and terrible. Of course um, they are, Jay. It's the it's the yeah Ohio Lutheran High School Association. That does sound um, pretty bad, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I've lobbied for other people too, and, and and no, there's there's something to be said that lobbyists are helpful and and really needed as part of the process. And quite honestly, you could make the argument that that Trump uh, needs a lobbyist more than others. But I think the statement doing the the, the revolve the five year anti revolving door thing it's it's largely symbolic, but it's still a statement, it, and it's still making making sort of a point. Uh, you're right as far as as the actual enforcement of it. There are a lot of easy ways around it, um, but but he's still he's still putting down some sort of a marker, and uh, I think that's a good thing. You know, the other thing I wanted to say that I think has been good out of this transition is I want to give uh, give props to President Obama. Um, Absolutely. You know, I don't think I don't think we talked last week about the meeting between Trump and Obama and some of his statements. Um, but he has been uh, nothing but gracious and statesmanlike, and and uh, really very presidential in, in in how he's he's handled this. Um, and at, at least you know, at least publicly, I I read something yeah. where a, a reporter who's close to President Obama asked him, "So how did it really go?" And and he sort of I guess smiled and said, "Well, maybe one day I'll tell you over a beer." Um. So you know, yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, and of course, there's no way, given the nature of the campaign that uh, President Obama like, pri privately was going to say, oh, Donald, oh, uh, how great to see you. And, you know, I'm sure you're going to do a swell job. Of course, he thinks that Donald Trump is going to be a disaster. But you're right, right. Publicly, he's handling it with what I would see, see as the sort of characteristic grace and class that Barack Obama has shown throughout his time in office. And so it's not surprising at all to me that he handles it that way. Yeah. All right. Um you know, while Democrats haven't been pleased with any of Donald Trump's appointments, uh, the one that's generated the most fervor by far 
is his appointment of former Breitbart News CEO Steve Bannon to be chief strategist and senior counsel. And that's a position that does not require Senate approval. Now, the argument against Bannon is that he's a white nationalist and some would say an obvious racist. And, you know, even if you don't believe Bannon is himself a racist, it seems hard to me to deny that he's a profoundly insensitive guy who has provided a platform for and, and really given aid and comfort to people who absolutely are racists. Uh, what do you think about the Bannon appointment, Jay? Well, first of all, I'd say, I'd say I wouldn't say that Democrats, I mean, are, are necessarily really, really in their heart of hearts unhappy about it um, hmm? because Steve Bannon's lead name will be in every fundraising letter uh, <laughs> for the next two years. Fair enough. Yep. Um, so I think there's, there's something of a um, – uh, uh, yes, I'm sure they don't approve of him personally, but uh, boy, is he going to be a, a help um, in terms of, of trying to raise dollars. Um, you know, I, I don't know – I don't know Steve Bannon. Uh, I don't know uh, much about him other than what I've read. Uh, I'm personally not a fan of, of Breitbart uh, just because uh, it's it's not my style of journalism. Um that's a very uh, it, subtle kind of uh, kind way of putting it, I would say. It's, well, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's it to me, it is it's very much sort of the opposite of what we try to do here. Yes. Um, okay, fair uh, enough. I, I, you know, I think it it is not you know thoughtful. It is it tends to be inflammatory, exaggerating, um, and so forth. Um, from all reports that 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 I've heard and read of people who have worked with Steve or uh, uh, Steve Bannon. Uh, most consider him to be sort of a jerk. Uh, so all that said, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't know whether the, the the charge that he is racist necessarily sticks, because, again, I think that's that's overused. Um, but to say that he has uh, gained some support among those who are racism, who, who probably are racist, I think that's probably a fair criticism. Yeah. Um, you know, it's to, to eliminate you know, racism or to say that there's no racial tinge to anything that that, that we ever say or, or do in, in politics in America is tough because on on both sides, it is it's kind of written into the fabric. And, and I, I wish it wasn't. And I wish we could get away from that. Um, but but I, I think it is it is there. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I'm I'm like to hear more what, what you think about Bannon, I well, guess, because I think a couple of things. I think that Donald Trump pretty clearly values a number of things in people. Number one, he values loyalty. Uh, number two, he values people who are brash outsiders, kind of working class, at least working class feel people. And that's Steve Bannon to a T. Right. I mean, yeah. he's a uh, he came up from a blue collar union, Democratic sort of household, kind of built himself up into into what he became for better or for worse. And, uh, you know, that's exactly Donald Trump's kind of guy. I, I really don't think that Donald Trump had much of an option, given the fact that Steve Bannon was such a big part, I would argue, and Breitbart, of what really helped Donald Trump. Uh, he kind of had to give him position. Uh, you know, to me, the question is how influential is Bannon going to, we don't know the answer to that question. You know, did he do it as basically a symbolic thing or is he going to be really listening to a lot of what Bannon's saying and doing a lot of what Bannon suggests? That's, that's harder to say. I hope he doesn't, uh, you know, I, and so I guess in terms of what I think about Steve Bannon, I've done a lot of reading, you know, he's, he seems to me pretty clearly to be a white nationalist. I have a problem behind that, and and, and you should I mean define define yeah. what you mean by basically because that's something that could mean different things to different people. Here's my understanding of it: white nationalists are people who question or who doubt, really have fundamental doubts about whether a truly diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural society can hold together. Uh, they believe that this country was formed on white European Judeo-Christian values and with white European Judeo-Christian people. And if you go away from that, if you decrease the influence of that, if you embrace diversity and don't kind of get 
people, other groups to assimilate, you're going to destroy the country. That That is my understanding of what white nationalists believe in. And there's a difference right. between white nationalists and white supremacists. There's certainly some overlap there. White supremacists, as the name would suggest, in my understanding, believe that white people are inherently superior to people of color. Uh, but, you know, and so you can certainly make uh, – I can understand where somebody could make a, a case or raise reasonable doubts about the difficulties involved in, you know, uh, holding together a, a very diverse society. And now, yeah, but and I, and on I the would, other, I would make the argument. I'm, 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 I'm all for things about, uh, for example, adhering to the the traditional principles, uh, both legal and moral, that that the country was founded upon, uh, and that that uh, we need, you know, greater integration rather than than a a segregation, balkanization by race. Um, so, I mean, to some extent, you can say those those are, I don't think, outside the mainstream sort of views. The idea that they are peculiarly white as opposed to some something else, uh, I think is. Well, I think you know that a lot of a lot of white nationalists look back to the past as a time when things were better, and that they will argue that uh, people were assimilated much better. And to me, I, I think there may be something to that, but I also think that what happened, uh, what they call assimilation, was a lot of forced assimilation and suppression of groups and you know of course the, these these folks are mostly as you would expect are are, are white folks obviously and so you know they are they're seeing that from that white usually male perspective and if you look back 30 40 years ago you didn't want to be a, a gay person or, or a Muslim person or a, an African American person life has gotten a lot better for these groups and you know, I think that's a good thing and so while I admit that it's a lot more challenging to uh, have a society that's very diverse and then doesn't force assimilation. I don't want to be part of a society that demands that sort of thing. If folks want to kind of give up their beliefs or assimilate them, that's fine. Well, but the, the well again, let's let's talk about what we mean by what you mean by assimilation, because I think that's something that that can mean different things to different people too. Well, I, mean, uh, I mean, my my sense is is. You know, to one assimilation uh, of of immigrants of people from different cultures means, hey, you get to keep your own culture. Uh, you have your own religious traditions, your own ethnic traditions, your own uh, family, and so forth. But uh, you know, you you agree to abide by the laws of of our country and 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 how the United sure. States works. But yeah, and um, I agree. With you, you can to that say point. you can say. I mean, female uh, genital mutilation is is sort of a that's sort of a tradition back in the old country in some places. Um, and, and it's a tradition that that we would frown upon here. And if you're going to come here, you need to assimilate by sure. by stopping that. Yeah. Well, but 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 I think that what the white nationalists are saying is that they feel that more than that, that there should be a big thumb placed on the scales and that the law should actually actively favor uh, or should actually actively discourage uh, the lack of assimilation. So should, you know, uh, uh, favor white Judeo-Christian traditions and so forth. So it's not like a neutral thing. And that's what I have a problem with. You know, I think I think what what Steve Bannon and white nationalists represent is a is a huge step backward. Uh, I think it's a disaster for the country in the long term. And I hope that Donald Trump is doing this much more symbolically and that he doesn't really listen to Steve Bannon all that much. I think it would be in the best long term interest of uh, the entire country if he doesn't. Um, my, let me just weigh in a little bit. And something this goes not even to Bannon particularly, but to the position of, of strategist, political director, uh, and that is that job requires it's 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 a great deal of of cynicism. Uh, it is looking at things uh, very much as they are, recognizing the good and bad, and what voters are going to respond to. And that's the case of, of probably every sort of political director, um, right, left, what have you. And and as as um, was it Bismarck who said that that politics is sort of the organization of, of hatreds. Um, that sounds right. Sure. Let's go with that. It, yeah. But it, it, there is something like that. I mean, if, if that's your job, you often tend to look at ways to divide people. 
um, to divide them up and then to put them back together to get the majority that you need. Well, God knows, Steve um, and that's good at that's that. part of, that's part of the job, and and it's it's unfortunate. And again, um, you know, but maybe Bannon is is the type of person uh, who who would be good at that job. I think yeah. to the extent he he put the campaign together, he he turned out to be good at that and better than anyone expected. So I'm I'm not I'm not stepping up to defend him his character, but I'm saying, look, if you're looking for the skill set uh, for that job, he might be the man to have that. Um, yeah, it, that it, skill set that skill set does not always translate into a better country, uh, better government, and so forth. But that's the skill set to winning elections. Right. Well, in the end, I think he's a bad guy who's going to be bad for the country, and I hope Donald Trump ignores him as much as possible. But we'll see. Now, before we move on, we'd like to thank our new supporters this week. First, there's Margaret from Colgate, Wisconsin, who made a very generous contribution to the show. Thank you very thank much, you, Margaret. Margaret. And so Margaret writes uh, here, once again, you talked me off the cliff, uh, referring to our post-election show. More, most importantly, after listening to the most recent show, I can help my kids understand without alarmist rhetoric, which I've accused others of in the past eight years. Keep honest, informed, fair, and civil discussion. We absolutely intend to do that. Thanks, Margaret. Um, next is Patrick from Arizona, who's a new sustaining supporter of the show through a monthly contribution he made on Patreon. He writes, right. thanks for the show. Tell the Democrats to quit reading Foucault and pick up John Dewey. So there's a, a little philosophical <laughs> comment there, and I couldn't agree more with that, Patrick. I think that's 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 sage advice. Um, and now, if you're interested in supporting the show financially, you can do what Margaret and Patrick did. Go to politicsguys.com and click on either the PayPal or Patreon donation links we've got up there. We would really appreciate it. And of course, it would always, as always, it would be a big help if you can spread the word about the show, share and retweet our new show posts on Facebook and Twitter, and leave reviews and ratings of the show on iTunes. Okay. Moving on, one, other, one final thing I wanted to talk about today is the future of my party, the Democrats. You know, while Donald Trump and the Republicans are preparing to take over government, Democrats have been progressing from shock on to grief through anger. Well, it's a lot of anger. And now, at least in some quarters, I think, to thinking about where they go from here. And two of the most visible manifestations of this are elections for their House leadership and choosing a new chair for the Democratic National Committee. Now, Nancy Pelosi, the current House Minority Leader, is a strong favorite to keep her job, but the 76-year-old San Francisco representative is facing a challenge from a very different kind of Democrat, 43-year-old Tim Ryan, who represents a district in your old stomping grounds, Jay, Youngstown, exactly. Ohio. Exactly, Y-Town. Yeah. yeah, the heart of the Rust Belt. Now, for DNC chair, the top two candidates appear to be Howard Dean and Keith Ellison. Now, Dean's an old white guy with plenty of experience, right? He's a former governor, presidential candidate, and actually has held the job of DNC chair. Ellison is a – And did a, did a super job at it. Well, you know, I think he did a pretty good job. Ellison is a clearly different choice. 53-year-old African-American Muslim who already has a day job as a member of the House. He represents a Minneapolis-based district. Um, Ellison is definitely the hot choice. Uh, he's a fresh face in a decidedly aged Democratic leadership, and he's gotten a lot of backing from the more progressive elements in the party. Um, my take on this is that the Democrats would be smart to stick with Pelosi and go with Dean over Ellison. I, my reasons for this, wow. I, well, I think that DNC chair needs to be a full-time job. I don't have a problem with Ellison being uh, African-American or Muslim. That's, I, I, you know, that's fine. What he does, I mean, that, the Muslim is, is also different. He also has ties to Farrakhan, Nation of Islam type thing, which I, I find to be troubling. Well, again, you would find it's it to not, be more troubling yeah, to me. To me, the, the main concern is that if, if the Demo I would I would have hoped that my party would have learned from Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the previous head of the DNC, who uh, was forced to quit in disgrace, that it's really good to have a professional full-time person doing this job. And, and, and even if I'm not questioning Keith Ellison's motives or commitment or anything like that, from all I, from all I've heard, he's a great guy. Uh, but the problem is, is if you set up a structure where on one hand you have incentives to do certain things as a sitting member of Congress, on the other hand, there are things you need to do for your party that might be in conflict with that. So my, 
my viewpoint is why set things up where there's there could be inherent conflicts don't put anyone in that position and especially given the fact that the democrats are so weak at the local level at the sub-congressional level i really think it's important to have somebody who has what howard dean has called the 50 state strategy to kind of build up democratic strength and who can spend all of his time doing that so that's why i think dean's a lot better choice um Go ahead, Jay. Oh, I, you know, I would, I would say I'd, I'd almost argue the other way. The, the reason that you, you put someone in there where there is potential conflicts is because they have potential conflicts. It's because they're looking for their side to win. I mean, they're, they're, this is something I think the, the public doesn't think about a lot or hear about. But there is so much in, inter-party, inter-member uh, conflict in, in any system. Uh, and a lot of times it's not ideological, it's personality driven, it's, it's you know, whoever, this guy wants the bigger office, this person has ambitions that, uh, that to, to rise higher and wants to take out the person one rung above them. Um, so, so naturally there are, there are people who are attracted to it because if, if you can control the money, which is, which is what that, that position is, the, essentially controls the money flowing into campaigns. You control who elects leadership. You control those those sorts of things. Who gets the the uh, uh, committee chairmanships, the the big offices, so forth. Um, so there's an incentive to to have that because there's a lot of power that that goes with it. And there's also the idea of uh, in, in politics. You know, I always look at it as there there are two people who can be in charge: uh, your guy or somebody else's guy. Uh, you want your guy in charge. Yeah, well, um, so. Again, that's a that's a sort of a cynical way to look at it, but I I think that's why Ellison would would want well, see, it. Yeah. Um, well, well, I I would I would disagree because the, the main problem I see with the Democrats is not a problem with Congress, so that's certainly a problem. God knows, um, you know, right now it's something like uh, a third of all incoming Democrats in the next House are going to be from three states, you know, California, uh, yeah. uh, New York, and Massachusetts, which consist around 20% of the country's population, you know, but to me, the problem is at the lower levels, at the state legislative and the governor's levels, that's where I think the DNC, that's where the Democratic Party needs to focus, especially in the next few years, because it's critically important that the party cut into Republican majorities in those state houses if they want to have any control over redistricting after the 2020 census. And my concern is that somebody who's focused mostly on Congress is going to ignore that more than they should. And so I think uh, for the good of the party in the long term, Howard Dean will be a better choice. Now, in terms of the in terms of the House, the reason why I, I'm there, I've never been a big fan of Nancy Pelosi, I think, uh, at least politically, she represents a lot of things that I find troubling about the Democratic Party. But one thing I know about Nancy Pelosi is she can raise a heck of a lot of money. Uh, and I think that's a that's a very positive thing. And and also, I think in a lot of ways, the the push from a lot of more what, what they call themselves progressive elements in the Democratic Party to just really change things up is an overreaction and an overcorrection. I mean, when you look at, for instance, the results of the presidential... But, but wouldn't, wouldn't you say that Pelosi, though, represents more of that progressive, uh, dare I say, fringe wing than, than, say, someone like a Tim Ryan? Yeah, I guess, I'm, I guess I'm saying more in terms of people are, and you're right, that's a good point, that people Tim are... Tim Ryan's one of, he's like a regular, a regular guy from Ohio. He's, yeah, I mean, Except, you know, he's written a book on meditation, which you wouldn't expect from, you know, some Youngstown guy. So I don't know what happened there. But anyway, yeah, you're right. You're right. And I guess it's more that, you know, people, I think a lot of Democrats are panicking. They're they're saying, well, my God, we have to change things up. And my reaction is, I don't think so. It's difficult to do. I get that. The media is so alarmist. The people that, you know, the, the whole bubble that so many Democrats in is so alarmist. But my advice to my fellow Democrats is take a breath. The presidential election was very, very close. The Congress issues are going to take care of themselves in part through demographics, but in greater part, if we work, if we focus a lot more on the less glamorous state races, and if we focus on getting our people to come out every two years instead of every four years. You know, that's an old joke saying right. that, you know, Republican voters come out every two years, Democratic voters come out every four years. And that's a huge problem. So I think the focus has been far too much on the, the glamorous stuff 
and not nearly enough work has been done in the trenches. And so I, I don't think we need to make big splashy changes. I just think we need to kind of put our, you know, what is it nose to the grindstone? Something needs to go to the grindstone, darn it. And we need to right. get to work on that stuff. And I think everything's going to be just fine. Well, I think I think you diagnosed the, the problem correctly. Um, but the Democrats have, have another demographic problem. Uh, you, you, they're always screaming, you know, that, that the demographics is destiny. And that is the the aging of the, the Democratic Party and the Democratic leadership. Uh, and I think that's why it's important to bring in people uh, like uh, Tim Ryan. Uh, again, I'm less crazy about Ellison, uh, more just because of the, the fair ties than anything else. Uh, but younger, younger people, yeah. uh, because as part of your strategy, the, the, what they need is, is they need a farm team and, and they don't have it. Yeah. Um, I think, I think you're right. You know, there, there's definitely something to be said for that. I mean, in terms of overall demographics, you take a look at Clinton's margins among millennials and they're just going to be an increasingly large group. You take a look at, you know, uh, uh, minority vote and so forth and the demographics of that, uh, you know, I, Democrats, I think, are are right now are understandably maybe a little bit overreacting and overcorrecting, and I uh, I'm not I don't think I'm just whistling past the graveyard here. I think everything's going to be just fine in the longer term, though there are going to be some rough rough periods in the next few years for sure. All right, uh, it's time for listener mail. First, we've got Tristan from Rixleyville, Virginia. Uh, Tristan writes. Hey guys, I'm a white man who has lived all over the South for most of my life playing rock music, so I probably have more Republican friends than most liberals. To be clear, we aren't angry because Hillary lost. We are upset because, in our view, the election of Donald Trump has emboldened hate. Maybe you don't hate minorities or women or immigrants. Maybe you think Trump wasn't really telling the truth when he said grab them by the when you're a star and they let you do it. However, that is little comfort to the groups who have fought so hard to achieve a taste of the American dream, who have strived towards true equality and a more perfect union. The gay couples that just got the freedom and privilege of marriage, losing that right is not an abstract notion, but a real threat to their way of life. To minorities who are just now showing us how tenuous and dangerous their relationship with the police is, this is a signal that white America doesn't get it. To the immigrant children in school who have their white classmates chanting, build a wall while they cry, this will scar them for life. To women who make only make 80 cents for every dollar a man makes, who get yelled at on the street by men who address them as sexual objects, who are made to choose between spending time with their newborn baby or going back to work, this is a slap in the face. So to my conservative friends, please recognize that this is more than losing an election to us. To many, this is a threat to their safety and their way of life. Please reassure the people in your community that you bear them no ill intent, that you recognize them as people and accept them as part of your America. If you demonize people, don't be surprised when they act like demons. To my liberal friends, we must be peaceful in our protests, but we must not stop. Acceptance is not an option, but neither is violence. We must fight against racism, misogyny, bigotry, or hate of any kind wherever we see it. No more silence, no more looking the other way when you hear someone mumble a sexist comment or pull their bag closer to them when a black man walks by. We counter bigotry by recognizing it, not ignoring it. I think there was a lot in there that, you know, I, I think we can both agree with, I would say. Sure, Jay. Yeah, sure. You know, and, and, and so I think it's, you know, absolutely that's, that's very important. That's why I wanted to read a lot, of, you know, a lot of that it was actually a part of a longer email, but especially the part about not demonizing those with whom we have these very, very strong and sincerely held disagreements. I think that's a very important point. Yeah. Thank you very much, Tristan. Thank you, Tristan. Yeah. Next, we have Noah from London. Noah writes, hi, guys. I've been listening to your podcast for almost a year now, and you've really helped me shape my political beliefs. As a liberal young teenager, I get a lot of my news from strongly biased social media accounts that reinforce my ideas. You're a refreshing alternative that offers a more central, balanced view on the world. Before I came across your podcast, I got a lot of my views on American politics from one-sided, often comedic shows like The Daily Show or John Oliver's HBO show. You've got to be in a much more common-sense, pragmatic position, but sticking to my progressive social stances. I've been interested in politics from a very early age and used to think of conservatives like David Cameron or Mitt Romney as racist, evil people who hate the poor. 
Thankfully, Jay, and to a certain extent Mike, have shown me that conservatives are patriotic, selfless people who want the best for their country, even if we have a different view on how to make the world a better place. Especially in this most polarized election year, it's vital that you can have every fact and policy-based debates without it turning into an insult fest like many interactions I have with people on social media. I have one question for you. Do you think that politics in the U.S. is fundamentally different to European politics? And if so, why is that? I hope you can keep up the good work. Well, first off, yeah, thanks very much, Noah. And, and, you know, I'm certainly not uh, an expert in any way in European politics. My wife actually uh, is at least a lot more than I am. And, and, you know, I, I certainly, a lot of folks have commented on what's happened with Trump and the Brexit vote and kind of the rise of, I guess, what you might call nationalist movements. Some people would call it. Or I'd say populist. Populist yeah. movements. And so I think there's a lot of that. It, my sense is that a lot of this stuff that was, that's been happening in parts of Europe for a while is now starting to become a bigger thing in the United States. Um, and, and, you know, I think, uh, so to that extent, I think there are some similarities. There are obviously a lot of differences, uh, in, in large part, I think, because, uh, you know, a lot of European governments have parliamentary systems. And so how governments are formed is a lot different. But I certainly can see some parallels. How about you, Jay? I, I'd say, you know, one of the reasons maybe you see similar things is because we're confronting similar yet yet different problems. I mean, immigration has been an issue in Europe for some time now and is, is becoming more of one. Uh, likewise, you know, we are in a global economy and Europe is in the same sort of position as the U S and it doesn't have the type of manufacturing jobs that it, it once did. I, I don't know if it's the same as, uh, you know, U S folks, uh, U S producers moving a, a plant to Mexico or China or, or German producers doing that. My sense is probably not to the same degree, but there's still that, uh, that, that push and some of it comes from the sort of the, the flattening of, of the the world as, as as Friedman would say and some of it is is just technology um, again the industrial jobs that they're there are you don't need as many people to run the factory as you used to and 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 I think Europe's confronting some of those those same issues and same demographic problems so so yeah you get some of the same same clashes back and forth yeah absolutely absolutely um and so that was a great question and obviously uh we could probably do a whole show on that uh, but uh, we really appreciate it Noah and of course if you have a comment a question or a correction for us we occasionally get things wrong we realize uh, send us an email at mail at politicsguys.com Dot com, uh, and we'll uh, well we won't read every email, or we we certainly we won't read every email on the air. Sorry well, about the that. email. Yeah, yeah we'll, we will read every email. We we won't read every email on the air, but we will most definitely personally respond to every single listener email and Facebook message we get. We 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 certainly will do that. Okay, uh, well that about does it for this week's uh, very jam-packed episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. And our Facebook page where we post stuff throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. And we would really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. And sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also really does help us out a lot. If you'd like to help support the show financially, you can do that through the PayPal or Patreon links on our website. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.